Thank you, Dr. Meredith, and uh, greetings, everyone, to all our brethren around the world. Welcome to any guests that we have here. My wife and I were in Beckley, West Virginia, for the Feast of Trumpets, a Feast of uh, Pentecost. We're looking forward to the Feast of Trumpets already. But uh, greetings to you from uh, brethren in West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, and Ohio uh, that met there in Beckley. My wife and I were there in Beckley, West Virginia for Pentecost 1989, 20 years ago. So I told them that I try to return every 20 years uh, to visit them. In the past few days, we've uh, remembered historic events. Uh, June 4th, 1989, was the Tiananmen Square massacre in China. Uh, Students were striving for freedom. The next day, June 5th, 1989, a lone protester stood in front of a line of tanks and uh, he was called the Tank Man. And uh, we have a commentary on our website, China's Tank Man and the Search for Freedom. And then June 5th, yesterday, 2009, President Obama gave a speech in Cairo University. Commentators believe that it will encourage good relations between the United States and Islamic countries. Others feel the speech will lead to the downfall of the current Israeli government. And June 6, 1944, as Dr. Meredith just mentioned, uh, today is the 65th anniversary of the invasion of Europe leading to the end of World War II. Then coming up in just a few weeks, July 20th, will be the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11, One Small Step for Man, where Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. We have an article in our upcoming July-August Tomorrow's World magazine by Mr. Rod McNair, One Small Step for Man. Pentecost 2009 was also historic. We realize that we're living in historic times. We were also able to make history, not just to observe history, because we are pioneering tomorrow's world. We are pioneering the new covenant And we are preparing the way for Jesus Christ in his second coming. We are making history, and we are observing history, of course, as well. We have an awesome mission to prepare the world, the church, ourselves for the second coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Last weekend, uh, Pentecost weekend here in Charlotte, Uh, We were not here, of course, but you heard three sermons, Growing in the Love of God by Dr. Scott Winnell, Pentecost, Thirsting for the Holy Spirit by Mr. Davy Crockett, and Preparing for Spiritual Gifts by Mr. Rod McNair. Today I'd like to continue those themes and consider further lessons that we can learn from Pentecost. On Pentecost 31 A.D., God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to his apostles and to Christ's disciples. So God has given us extremely great and wonderful gifts. Let's turn to John 3 and verse 16. This is the most wonderful gift that God has given us, and we can remind ourselves daily of this awesome gift. And, of course, the Passover is an annual memorial of Christ's death. John 3, verse 16, called the precious verse or the golden verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his Son. That was an awesome gift. I won't turn there, but 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15 says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The Apostle Paul wrote in the King James Version, is thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The RSV has thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So God has given us unspeakable gifts and this indescribable gift, this inexpressible gift. Let's turn to Acts 2, and you know this. It was read on Pentecost. Acts 2, this, of course, was... Peter's sermon as a result of the phenomena that occurred on the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D., and they wondered what was happening. Acts 2, verse 38, when they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, verse 38 of Acts 2, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God has given us so many wonderful gifts. We think of gifts for anniversaries or gifts for baby showers and gifts for weddings. But God has given us these extremely wonderful, priceless, precious gifts, and particularly the gift of the Holy Spirit. On Pentecost weekend, you may have read through the chapters here in Acts, uh, chapters 1 and 2, and we saw the miracles that God performed through his people that day. Let's turn to Acts 1, and here Jesus is telling them about the promise that the Father would give them, verse 4 of Acts 1, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. That's first, uh, Peter, no, Second Peter uh, 1 and verse 4, and I hope that you claim God's promises. Uh, the Bible is a treasure house of golden promises, of golden guarantees, of precious promises. This was one that he gave to his disciples. And of they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And they said, will you restore to us the kingdom at this time? And he said, it's not for them to know the times or seasons. But verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The mission was given to the church for them to be witnesses to the end of the earth. Now, they did that to some degree, but God has given us that same mission. And how are we going to perform that mission? Well, of course, through the power of God's Holy Spirit. On Pentecost weekend, we learned that we are to receive the power of God, or that the disciples did in 31 day, 31 A.D. Let's turn to chapter 2 and verse 4. Here he describes the phenomenon that happened, that there was this sound of, uh, from heaven as a rushing mighty wind filled all the house where they were sitting, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues 
or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were all filled with the Spirit. Now, in your church bulletin, you have a commentary today by Dr. Douglas Winnale. Are you filled with God's Spirit? I'll just read a section of it. I hope you read the whole uh, commentary later. In the Scriptures, we read of numerous people who were filled with God's Holy Spirit. John the Baptist, his mother Elizabeth, and his father Zacharias. That's in Luke 1, verses 15, 41, and 67. On the day of Pentecost, Dr. Winnell writes, the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit, as we just read here in Acts 2, in verse 4. You might want to underline that verse. Later, Peter and Paul were described as being filled with the Spirit. Acts 4, verse 8, Acts 9, verse 17, and Acts 13, verse 9. Are you filled with God's Spirit? They were given the gifts of prophecy. Notice this in Acts 2, verse 17. Here, Peter is telling them about uh, the fulfillment of this day. That is, it is in type a fulfillment of one of Joel's prophecies. And it shall come to pass in the last days, Acts 2, verse 17, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That means anyone with God's Holy Spirit can speak inspirationally. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So God said on maid servants that uh, they would prophesy, and their sons and daughters shall prophesy. So God has given us the ability to speak under inspiration. And, of course, to speak under inspiration, we need to have programmed in our mind, written on our hearts and minds, the Scriptures. When you read in Luke, the second chapter, it's called Mary's Magnificat, and how she's explaining the blessing that she had of being pregnant with the baby, uh, the Messiah. And she's talking about the salvation of Israel. That didn't come from, you know, out of nowhere. She had studied the Scriptures. She knew the prophecies. And when we speak under inspiration, it has to come from the Word of God that's a part of our nature, a part of our knowledge, a part of our understanding. I've told you before, I've heard my wife talking on the phone, giving counseling to others, and I know God is inspiring her in giving that particular counsel. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What an awesome and wonderful gift. But notice he goes on to say here, verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Now, what's all this? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I know when I was first coming into the church, I'm wondering, now, wait a minute. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How, how does that happen? Everyone calls on the name of the Lord. Well, of course, it depends how you call on the name of the Lord. If you're repentant, if you're humble, if you want to obey God, of course, God says through Peter, he said that uh, he only gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So it's how you call on the name of the Lord. But why would Peter talk about 
the sun being turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, you know, in Revelation, the sixth chapter, that is the fulfillment of the darkness and the moon being turned to blood. That's in Revelation, the sixth chapter. But why would he say it here? Now, how many of you know the answer to that question? Why would Peter refer to the darkness uh, being the sun being turned to darkness and the moon into blood? How many of you know the answer to that question? Not a trick question. This is a, a real question. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Anyone else? Only six. Have you not read my article in the latest Living Church News? You have not. Let me read it to you. If, if you will not read it, I will read it to you. And this is the article uh, from the May-June 2009 Living Church News, the, the first New Testament Pentecost, page 6. Joel's prophecy also foretold that the moon would be turned to blood. Had Peter's audience seen the moon turn to blood just a few weeks earlier? A number of astronomical researchers have documented a lunar eclipse visible from Jerusalem on the night after the crucifixion, April 25th, 31 A.D. Author Anthony Alfieri pointed out, he's a church member, he's uh, died last year, pointed out that this April 25th eclipse was the only one in 10 years to be, quote, perfectly blood red in color, end of quote. That's from The Darkness of the Crucifixion, Volume 1, page 399. I have a copy of it in my office if any of you would like to see it. I go on in the article. Alfieri explains, quote, The red phase of this eclipse lasted over two hours, providing a spectacular display of the moon shifting deeper and deeper into its full-color gamut and then returning to normalcy. That's on page 396 of his book. And I write then, this was the night after Jesus was placed in the tomb, the night we call the night to be much observed, Exodus 12, verse 42. Such eclipses occur from time to time, but only occasionally do they align with important calendar dates. Interestingly, astronomers predict that a similar eclipse will occur on Nisan 15 in the year 2015. So Peter was talking to an audience that had a common experience, that common experience was the darkness, a supernatural darkness. When Jesus was on the cross, that darkness was from noon to 3 o'clock. It must have been very scary. And then that night, they saw this lunar eclipse, a blood-red moon, that very night, just after Jesus had been put into the tomb. Interestingly enough, as uh, I mentioned here, there are other eclipses in 2015 on that same night, Nisan 15, the night we call the night to be much observed. Uh, that will be uh, an eclipse at noon, uh, let alone as, as measured at the prime meridian. Such a thing may not have happened, says one astronomer, since Genesis 1. The Hebrew calendar day, Nisan 15, in 2015, will end at the very same time, six hours east of London, in the middle of the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, the moon will be full and eclipsed. Another solar eclipse will happen in 2015, and that's the Feast of Trumpets. That's uh, September 13, 2015. 
uh, Elul 29 or Tishri 1. That very day, of course, is the Feast of Trumpets. And to top that off, then the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles will also be a lunar eclipse in 2015. That's uh, September 28, 2015. And the, uh, our commentator writes, these are truly amazing circumstances. First, all of the holy days that can uh, coincide with eclipses do so this year. Second, the total, total lunar eclipse happens when it is noon at the prime meridian of Greenwich, London, which means it is as a maximum when it is midnight at the international dateline. Third, the eclipse is exceptionally lengthy, virtually six hours from start to finish. The moon seems to pass right through the middle of the umbra, or very nearly so. As noted, such a circumstance probably has not happened since creation week when the heavenly cycles were set in order. So we're not making any other predictions other than letting you know that those phenomena take place at that time. But here Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is saying, you people saw the sun turn to darkness. You saw the moon turn to blood. And so they were moved, of course. And then he goes on to tell about Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 22 of Acts 2, by the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. So it was an amazing day, that day of Pentecost. Now, <clears throat> he also brings out here later on that they were, um, 3,000 were baptized that day. Uh, they were moved by that sermon and moved, of course, by the astronomical events that had occurred as well. Though these miracles took place, they spoke in international languages. There are people there from 16 different uh, regions or, or countries. And uh, they heard the gospel heard uh, in their own language. So these were great miracles that were taking place. But there are other miracles that take place. And one is the miracle of transforming carnal nature into spiritual or divine nature. That is a great miracle. And you and I must be walking miracles. We must change from carnality to spirituality. Our very lives must be transformed. Let's turn to Romans, the 12th chapter. You know that particular scripture. Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, the Apostle Paul writes, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Some people like to be dead sacrifices, but uh, he wants us to live and to sacrifice our time, to give of our time, our life, our energies, our in service to God, a living sacrifice, holy. How are you holy? And remember, our children are holy, 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, that if, we have, if they have baptized parents, he says, your children are holy. And remember, before Pentecost, Jesus told the disciples that God's Spirit was with them. And so you children should know that God's Spirit is with you. And, of course, Jesus said, and it shall be in you, as he told the apostles. So our children are blessed. Our children are holy, as it says in 1 Corinthians 7, because God's Spirit is with them. 
a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How much does the mind of the world need to be changed? The mind of the world is carnal. The mind of the world is selfish. As Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's the carnal mind. He said, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly in John 10 and verse 10. We have to be transformed in our minds, and most of you are being transformed, have been transformed, and will be transformed. It's a lifelong process. Are you continually transformed by the renewing of your mind? God is working with every single one of us if we want him to, and sometimes he works with us whether we know it or not. And we need to demonstrate God's miraculous power in each of us. We need to demonstrate, let me repeat that, God's miraculous power in each and every one of us. The title of the sermon is The Miracle of Transformation. You could title it The Miracle Conversion. We had that in our sermon library, number 132. And then we had a must-play sermon a few weeks ago, Four Steps to Conversion by Mr. Rod King, number 522. The sermon Significant Change, Uh, a few weeks ago, number 530. So, brethren, we need to ask ourselves from time to time, how deeply converted am I? You can say, well, you know, a person is either pregnant or not pregnant. It's an either-or situation. But are you converted or not converted? There are degrees of conversion. There are degrees of faith. When Jesus said, oh, you, weak in faith, little faith you have, Abraham was not weak in faith, as it says in Romans, the fourth chapter. So there are degrees of faith. And there are degrees of conversion when Paul said, quench not the spirit. If those who are quenching the spirit, they're not going to be deeply converted. We need to be deeply converted. In fact, that was the title of Dr. Meredith's Living Church News article January, February 2009, What is Deep Conversion? was the title of his article. I'll just quote from page three of that article. Quote, so what is the key area of Christian behavior that profoundly denotes one's deep conversion? After being in God's true church for 59 years and being very well acquainted with all of the leading ministers, it has become quite clear to me that one key element denotes real conversion in a person, probably more than any others. What is that key character trait? Later on in page 4, he writes, quote, This entire attitude of total surrender to God and of being willing to take correction and even submit to chastening from God is one of the most vital issues of Christian development imaginable. So the willingness to be corrected is an indicator of deep conversion. And this is the July-August tomorrow, I mean, uh, Living Church News. Um, I just received this, I believe it was Thursday, so um, 
I won't ask you. I won't ask you any trick questions. But I hope you all uh, received your July August 2009 Living Church News. Mr. Apartian has an article in there. Do you like to be corrected? No, Mr. Apartian, I do not. I do not like to be corrected. But I know I need to be corrected if I am going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Here's what Mr. Apartian writes on page 19. God says, quote, He who keeps instruction is in the way of life, but he who refuses correction goes astray, Proverbs 10:17. Are you on the path to life, or are you going astray because you reject reproof? I often heard Christ's apostle, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, say that he asked God regularly for correction. Today, I often hear our presiding evangelist, Dr. Roderick C. Meredith, say the same thing. We should all be making that same request of God. The more we are converted, the more we will welcome correction. Why do some of us hesitate to pray that prayer? Well, I pray it in a special way. You might turn to Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, because Jeremiah prayed for correction, but he put a merciful qualification, at least in his request to God. Jeremiah 10. Um, oh, I didn't have that marked. Uh, anyone find it for me? Anyway, oh yeah, here it is. Um, verse 23, Jeremiah 10, 23. A memorization verse which I temporarily forgot. <coughs> Jeremiah 10, 23. Oh, eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. And how often I pray that, you know, what way should I go? What decision should I make? I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Well, you can direct your own steps, but there are two proverbs that say that, uh, the, what is it, the way of man, um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death, Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25. Verse 24, O eternal, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. And I add to it, correct me in mercy, that uh, you bring me to nothing. Well, God corrects us, and we want to be corrected. God corrected me just the other day, and I, uh, <laughs> I won't share with you what it was, but I, I, uh, I had to make myself thank God for it, uh, to think about it and realize why it was good for me, that I know it's going to have long, at the short term, it's not pleasant, it says in Hebrews, the 12th chapter. But it has long-term benefits. And something that happens today may be painful, but it may prevent something more tragic later on in the future. And you can be thankful that you've gotten that correction now. So we need to be totally surrendered. We need to be willing to make significant changes. I mentioned the sermon on significant change. So let's next look at some miracles of transformation. We've mentioned some of these in sermons before. But it is dramatic when you take a look at someone who was totally carnal and miraculously is transformed into being someone spiritual. It's a miracle. Let's take a look at uh, Galatians, the first chapter. Galatians 1. 
Remember, Saul was standing by. He was guarding the coats when they executed Stephen. And he went out persecuting the church. He was responsible for the imprisonment and the death of true Christians. He later called himself the chief of sinners. Galatians, I better turn there, I keep talking here. Galatians, the first chapter and verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me was not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Can you think of any other category of uh, wickedness and, and sinfulness? of trying to destroy God's true church and God's true people. Then verse 21. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. What an incredible transformation. Now, that just didn't happen, brethren. That was a miracle. Of course, Christ struck him down on the road to Damascus, and he was three days uh, without sight. So God humbled him, and he fasted. And, of course, uh, God gave him the Holy Spirit and had a special mission for Paul. He said, you're going to have to suffer for me, but I'm going to send you to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. So that is one incredible example of, of a miracle of transformation. And you know the others, or you could probably point out several more, but let's just take a look at Acts, the seventh chapter, Acts 7. Stephen was a, a deacon, and yet God worked uh, great uh, witnessing through him. In fact, uh, the, he witnessed to the whole Sanhedrin, and he spoke for... Oh, many verses here as you read through Acts 7. He's telling the whole history of Israel and God's intervention to the Sanhedrin. He's, he's preaching to these uh, great uh, religious leaders who knew the whole history of Israel. And he's demonstrating that he agreed with that history. He knew that history. And yet something must have provoked him. Because it doesn't say he's just giving a narrative about God from verse 50, he's quoting the scriptures. And then in 51, he changes his whole approach and he begins to indict them with powerful accusations. Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now those 3,000 who baptized had accepted their responsibility towards the death of Christ and repented and were baptized. But these are resisting the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And he goes on to uh, indict them. And they, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, verse 54, gnashed at him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they rushed at him. And, of course, Saul, 
was there, verse 58, and they put their clothes at his feet, and they stoned Stephen, verse 59, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, smash these executors to their, you know, death. No, he didn't do that. You know, I, humanly, you'd want to do that. But he was so converted, so deeply converted, that he said, Lord Jesus, lay not this sin to their charge. Do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's miraculous, to be able to love your enemies to the extent that when they're killing you, you ask God to forgive them. There's another individual, of course, who had a miraculous transformation, and that's the Apostle Peter. You know how Jesus said, you know, Peter, you'll deny me three times. He said, oh, no, no, I won't do that. And yet he did deny him three times. And yet later on, Peter was so converted that people wanted Peter's shadow to pass over them so that they could be healed. What an incredible change. What an incredible transformation. And Peter, of course, himself said in Acts 3.19, Repent and be converted. Peter himself had been converted. Then there was the Apostle James. Turn back to Acts 1. We're looking at examples of miraculous conversion and transformation. James was called the Lord's brother in Galatians. And James uh, was one of those brothers. You read in John the 7th chapter who was kind of ridiculing Jesus. Well, anyone who's prominent should go up to the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. You go on up. They were ridiculing Jesus, his brothers. But what happened? They saw him crucified, and they saw him resurrected. Notice in Acts, the first chapter here, they were, Peter was organizing the meeting to replace Judas, who had committed suicide. And they had two uh, candidates, and they drew lots for him. But... The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. But when the day of Pentecost fully come, well, that's chapter 2. Um, my eye doesn't fall on it, but it will in a minute here, where it says, oh, here we are, verse 14. It tells the 11 apostles that were there, the upper room, Acts 1, verse 13. But notice verse 14, who else was there? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. James, who had ridiculed Jesus, now was converted. And apparently he had been trained in the rabbinical schooling because he was very highly respected among the Jews. And, of course, Judas, another brother of Jesus, became an apostle and wrote the book of Jude. There is a story uh, by Hegesippus, who was a uh, historian, about uh, James and what happened to them. And uh, this is in Barclay's commentary on uh, the letters of James, the letter of James. And he's quoting Hegesippus, who was this historian, about James, the Lord's brother. And what happened was that the uh, 
the Jews of the day, of course, didn't like James, who was writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, as you read his epistle. And they were told him to recant of his dedication and support of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He did not. They took him to the pinnacle of the temple up on the wall, told him to recant, and they did, he didn't. So they threw him off the pinnacle of the temple, hoping that he would die. He didn't die. He was severely injured. And this is what Hegesippus writes. Accordingly, they went up and cast the just down. He was called James the Just. And they said to one another, Let us stone James the Just. And they began to stone him, since he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and knelt down, saying, I beseech you, Lord God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, if James actually did that, he would have heard his brother, when his brother was being crucified, say that on the cross. And James himself apparently said the very same thing to those who were killing him. And so as they were stoning him, one of the priests of the sons of Rechab, the son of Rechabim, mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet, cried out saying, Stop! What are you doing? The just praise for you. And a certain one of them, one of the fullers, that is a fuller is one who uh, does clothing, beats a club, taking the club with which he pounds clothes, brought it down on the head of the just, and so he suffered martyrdom. And they buried him there on the spot near the temple, a true witness, as he become both to Jews and Greeks, that Jesus is Christ, and immediately Vespasian besieges them. This is on page 14 of Barclay's commentary, uh, quoting from the historian Hegesippus. So if that story is true, which seems very reasonable, that James, who was a ridiculer of his brother Jesus, was totally transformed to becoming the pastor of the Jerusalem congregation. A miraculous transformation took place. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. You know, conversion is a miracle. We have to be walking miracles. We have to continually grow in the depth of conversion and in spiritual maturity. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. About time I have some of Dr. Meredith's tea here. First Corinthians 6, starting with uh, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Here is a list of Corinthian sinners. They had a whole variety of sins. Were they converted? Did a miracle take place in their life? Did they continue to kill and drink and uh, covet? He says, verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of our God. Yes, there's miracles of transformation that take place. God gave us the gift of His Son for our sins. 
The shed blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. As it says in 1 John 1 and verse 7. So God has given us, his people, the gift of the Holy Spirit so they could be transformed, so we can be transformed from carnal nature to spiritual nature. Saul was transformed from a persecutor to the apostle Paul, and he suffered and served. Stephen witnessed for Christ and gave his life, and yet he prayed for forgiveness for those who were executing him. Simon the fisherman was transformed from a disloyal disciple to a dedicated apostle. And James the Lord's brother was transformed from a skeptic and a slanderer to a dedicated apostle and pastor of the Jerusalem church. We know that ancient King David repented deeply as we read Psalm 51 and became a man after God's own heart. And the sinful Corinthians were cleansed and transformed. So God has called us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. How can we grow and how can we change? The next section of the sermon, I want to share with you some of the aspects of the power of the Holy Spirit and Christ in us. Do we really understand the power that God has given us? So let's briefly consider how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of converted children of God and how God has used the Holy Spirit in the world, in history, and in in creation. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 1, which I'm sure you did on uh, the day of Pentecost, 2 Timothy 1, and verse 7. What is God's Spirit? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Some of us, have we should have a natural fear, fear of, of falling off high places and uh, fear of dangers that we can recognize. But as I explained to you before in the Sermon on Unconditional Love, 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. And God gives us that. Whenever I'm nervous, I may have a situation which I feel, uh, which I feel very uncomfortable. And I'm wondering, well, is it because I don't have enough love? Because perfect love casts out fear. And I ask God for more of that love. And lo and behold, that fear, nervousness goes away because God gives me more of his love. But this is God's power, the power of God's Spirit. I might just refer you to um, Dr. Meredith's article. This is a year ago for Pentecost, May, June 2008, uh, The Power of God's Spirit, uh, page 1. Dear brethren and friends, he says, Brethren, you and I have had that calling that is called by God to understand the truth. And that calling brings with it a special responsibility. For Jesus also said, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Luke 12, 48. As Pentecost approaches, we need to meditate on the power of God's Holy Spirit. For that Spirit was poured out on the earthly Christians. Titus 3, verses 5 and 6. And we too can be filled with this very special Spirit of God if we fully surrender and seek God with all our hearts. That's the power of God's Spirit, May, June 2008, Living Church News, 
uh, Dear Brethren and Friends by Dr. Meredith. Yes, we have to, as it says in verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God. The idea in the Greek is to fan the flame uh, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Again, very plain reference to one of the basic doctrines of the church, the laying on of hands, which again shows that God's people must submit to the government of God. You just <laughs> remember uh, uh, some enthusiastic individuals who were first learning about the truth and uh, they baptized one another with the laying on of hands. Well, that, that was not, not valid, of course. But nonetheless, uh, God says here that we need to stir up the gift of God. We need to make sure that we are not Laodicean. By the way, uh, do you know what word won the spelling bee championship here just a few days ago? Some of you are shaking your heads yes. A 13-year-old aspiring neurosurgeon from Kansas, Kavya Shivashankar, is a top speller. This is from the Associated Press, May 29, 2009. Aspiring neurosurgeon uh, was the top speller. And what word did she spell correctly to become champion? Laodicean is the winning word for the spelling bee champion. Of course, we can spell the word, but we had better not become one. <laughs> you know, as a civil engineer, uh, we, we used to say, what was the say was saying? Uh, I studied to be a, an engineer, now I are one, I think was the <laughs> way we used to say it. But even while we're physical, of course, God gives us a powerful spiritual dimension, and billions of human beings around the world have not yet received God's Spirit. God's spiritual power, His love, and His sound-mindedness are characteristics that we must nurture after they have been given to us. So we must avoid Laodiceanism and must strive to be zealous Philadelphians. So one of the aspects of God's Spirit, of course, is that it is spiritual power, and it is spiritual power to overcome, it's spiritual power to conquer, it's spiritual power to overcome wrong habits, wrong thinking, wrong behavior, and to replace carnal nature with God's creative, loving nature. Reminds me of the one scripture there, of course, uh, during Pentecost, I hope you all read Romans, the eighth chapter. If you haven't, uh, certainly uh, reading the whole chapter, one of the most inspiring chapters in the New Testament. And uh, the Apostle Paul uh, writes in here, uh, Romans, the eighth chapter, that uh, we are to be conformed, verse 29, for whom he foreknow, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, I've emphasized this verse before, and I'll emphasize it again. And I hope you have it well marked in your Bible, because that should be a part of your very purpose, a part of your very goal, a part of your very daily routine in life, who you are and what you are. That we need to be conformed to the very nature, image, character of Christ. When people see us, they're supposed to see Christ, not in an image, but in the very holy nature and loving character of Christ. This is extremely important, this particular verse, because it requires a miracle of transformation, requires a miracle 
of conversion. One other aspect of God's Holy Spirit, we'll turn there to James, uh, the first chapter, James 1. You know, sometimes we just think of the Holy Spirit, but we don't really think of all its applications, implications, and aspects of the Holy Spirit. James 1 and verse 18. Of his own will, in the New King James, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now that really waters it down. The King James is of his own will. He begat us with the word of truth. And this is the incredible dimension of understanding the meaning of life and the truth that God has given us, that God begets us with his Holy Spirit as a begotten child of God. And then we take a lifetime to grow into maturity and then are born again the same way Jesus was born again by a resurrection from the dead, Romans 1, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power by a resurrection from the dead. This is incredible. When you read 1 John 3, Beloved, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God because he's begotten us by his spirit. We're begotten children of God. And so we need to understand that as one of the major aspects of God's truth. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we also need to think about the spirit of creation, that is the power of creation. Let's turn back there to Genesis 1.1. You know, the very power of God's spirit that is in you is the same power that created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The King James is singular, created the heaven. New King James, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, or actually became without form and void. Because as Isaiah 45 brings out, God did not create it without form and void. It became that way. He did not create it that way. And darkness was upon the face of the, the deep. Notice this. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, I won't turn there or take the time, but, well, I, oh, I just have it turned to it by who? How about that? You know, when my wife asked me for something, I normally try to get it to her within five seconds. And it's just kind of a, a response mechanism. And I hope that you wives will try to do the same for your husband. I said, you know, I wanted to turn to Psalm 104.30, and I turned it, and it was about one second for me to find Psalm 104. I just had it marked. But while I'm there, I'll read it to you. Psalm 104 and uh, verse 30. You send forth your spirit. They are created, and you renew the face of the earth. God's spirit is the spirit of creation and recreation in this case. You renew the face of the earth. Let's turn to uh, Hebrews, the first chapter. You know, God's spirit is the spirit of begettal. It's the spirit of the power to overcome. It's the spirit of creation. And notice also in Hebrews, the first chapter, that it is also sustaining the universe. We heard in the sermonette about the 
incredible uh, creation that we have and the uh, amazing galaxies that are out there. They, as I've told you several times, they're going out into space at 100 million miles an hour. And I just, why would they be rushing out into space so fast, 100 million miles an hour? Well, they are. Um, and if you want to uh, uh, argue with me, uh, you can give me the evidence to the contrary, but you're not going to find it. These galaxies are moving out into space at 100 million miles an hour. Where are they going? Oh, God is, he inhabits eternity. And as we heard in the sermonette, God is in another dimension. And so will we be in another dimension. Where time, we will be unaffected by time. God created time when he created the universe. I've quoted that scripture to you before um, from uh, the... uh, Stephen Hawking said, you know, at the very beginning of the universe, there had to be, there was no time before the beginning of the universe. Time began at the beginning of the universe. I'll get the exact quote for you for any of you who want it. But here in Hebrews, the first chapter, verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and that's the Greek word character, the only place in the Bible, the New Testament, where the Greek word character appears, which means a stamped impress. It's almost like it was a stamp and the very same image came out. The express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Holding what? Upholding all things by the word of his power. When he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or as it says in the RSV, he reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by the word of power. The Moffat translation says, he reflecting God's bright glory and stamped with God's own character sustains the universe with the word of power. So that's the kind of spirit God has, and that's the spirit that is in you. It is also the power of the resurrection. Let's turn to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Matthew 22 and verse 28. Matthew 22, verse 28. Remember, he was asked a trick question by the Sadducees who believed there was no resurrection. Talking about the seven brothers who married and had no offspring, and the one uh, left, uh, the second died, and last of all, the woman died also. Verse 28, they asked Jesus of Matthew 22, therefore in the resurrection... Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? 
God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Yes, God's Spirit is the Spirit of the resurrection. And God's Spirit is also there for those who are weak. Now, I lift weights, or try to, every week, but that doesn't make me really strong. I mean, I never meet the other people who are lifting uh, ten times the number of pounds that I lift each week. But I feel weak each week. Let's turn to Second uh, Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Second Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse 9. The Apostle Paul went through all kinds of sufferings, as you know, as he uh, tells through uh, the previous chapter, or chapter 11, verses 22 on, in deaths often, he says, a day and a night in the deep, and so forth. And so here in chapter 12, he, uh, starting with verse 9, uh, where he asked God to let this uh, thorn in the flesh be taken from him, and he said to me, Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is for the weak. I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And I won't turn there, but he tells us in Isaiah 40, no, verse uh, 29, He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. It's Isaiah 40 and verse 29. So God gives power to the weak. And many of us have to realize that we have certain limitations. You know, I used to run the mile in uh, a reasonable time. I don't run the mile anymore in a reasonable time. I walk and run to uh, do the best I can and huff and puff and uh, try to uh, keep my blood pressure down, which I, I shouldn't share with you, but I, the last time it was uh, 116 over 68, which uh, the nurse said, that's amazing. I won't uh, tell you the rest of my uh, physical limitations, but sometimes we have physical limitations. I remember one man years ago who only had one lung, and he was, you know, complaining that he only had the one lung. I said, well, you just have to do the best you can with one lung. And you, they actually have, of course, the, uh, don't call it the handicapped uh, uh, Olympics, where they have skiers go down the hill, one-legged skiers in competition. So those people don't complain, or they may complain, but they're making the best that they can within their limitations. And we have to, too. We have to recognize the realities of our limitations and do the best we can with them until God heals us or strengthens us or gives us another leg or another arm or another lung, as it may be, or in the resurrection. And God, of course, can do miraculous things. And we've been praying for those signs, wonders, miracles, and healings, and I hope you'll continue to do so. So God gives power to the weak. There's also power in the gospel being preached, Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 17. Now, I've got uh, quite a few more of these, so I see we have another hour to go, and I'll be glad to share those with you. 
Romans 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Christ is our living Savior and great high priest. How much power does he have to save us? Can Christ save us? I won't turn there, but I'll just refer you to one of my favorite scriptures, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, or save forevermore, as one of the margin has it. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ is our great high priest. He suffered in the flesh. He knows what you're suffering. And therefore, he is our high priest who always lives to make intercession for us, and he is able to save us to the uttermost. That's the power of the gospel. Let's turn to John 16:13. God's Spirit also reveals the truth. And it says, knowledge is easy to him who has understanding. And uh, some of those who can't understand the doctrines of the Bible are those who have not begun to obey God. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Psalm 111, verse 10. Here in John, the 16th chapter, he shows us some of the other benefits of God's Holy Spirit. John 16 and verse 13. He tells us, however, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. What a remarkable revelation. What a remarkable blessing. What a remarkable gift that we can understand truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth in John 17, 17. We know God's plan. We know that God is not unfair. We know that there are not people burning in torment in an ever-burning hellfire under the earth at this moment. And when we preach about the white throne judgment, as my article in the Tomorrow's World magazine, um, is there life after death? And we talk about the white throne judgment. And these people get very upset that their relatives aren't being tormented in hell at the moment. Well, I, I shouldn't characterize it just that way. But it seems to come across that way in some of their criticisms. They think, well, God is just, you know, if, if he wants to take people who and never let them hear the gospel and then torment them in hell forever, that's okay. No, it's not okay. That's not the God of the Bible. But Satan has deceived people into thinking that humans are going to have the same fate he has to be tormented forever. That's the kind of deceiver he is. But God's Spirit reveals truth. Now, notice what else in the same verse, verse 13. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. God's Spirit helps you to understand prophecy, understand God's plan for the future, understand the end of the world or the end of the age and what's beyond it, that there is a new world coming. God's Spirit reveals that. Let's go to uh, Romans 5.5. 5. Again, this is review, and we've emphasized this many times, but it's a wonderful promise that God gives us. Romans 5, verse 5 now hope does not disappoint 
because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which, as it should read, has been given to us. How do you have divine love? How can you have that kind of love that Stephen had in asking Jesus not to lay that sin to their charge? How do you have that same kind of love that James, the Lord's brother, had when his executors were killing him, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How do you have that kind of love? It's through God's Holy Spirit. And I hope you'll review Dr. Scott Winnale's sermon, which I did not hear, but Growing in the Love of God, which he gave the weekly Sabbath. We have to grow in God's perfect character, in perfect, unconditional love, to love our enemies, to pray for those that despise us, to do good to those who persecute us. That's God's kind of love. And we know that that's the solution to the world's problems. When the millennium comes, it isn't just going to be a total Disney world. There is a transformational period of time when Egypt will not go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and God has to correct them, as indicated in Zechariah, the 14th chapter. And it's going to be a process of re-education, of educating the world to the way of peace. And we are to be practicing, pioneering, and living the way of peace. And it requires a change in human nature. Now, the next telecast that is coming up next weekend is the second program on the new set. It is Prepare for Armageddon. And in that uh, program, even though we've quoted General MacArthur several times, you'll actually see him before Congress giving his famous speech. He repeated the words that he gave on the USS Missouri at the uh, unconditional surrender of Japan on board the USS Missouri. And this is what he said both on that day of surrender and in his farewell address to Congress. Military alliances, balances of power, leagues of nations, all in turn failed, leaving the only path to be the way of the crucible of war. The utter destructiveness of war now blocks out this alternative. We have had our last chance. If we do not devise some greater and more equitable system, Harmagedon, as he pronounced it, or our Armageddon, will be at our door. The problem, basically, he says, is theological and involves a spiritual recrudescence or renewal or rebirth and improvement of human character that will synchronize with our almost matchless advances in science, art, literature, and all material and cultural developments of the past 2,000 years. It must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh. Very insightful and very moving. So human beings will continue to try to find the way to peace, but the only way is through re-education to the way of life that Christ taught, as he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, and then, of course, later on in uh, John 11, said, I am the resurrection and the life. So God's Spirit gives us God's love. And also, as Mr. Crockett brought out in his sermon, Pentecost, thirsting for the Holy Spirit, that the Ten Commandments were given on the Feast of Weeks on Mount Sinai. 
They had the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments were not internalized. They were external to them. And so, on the same Feast of Weeks in 31 A.D., God gave His Spirit to internalize and enable us to have God's Holy Spirit, to have the Ten Commandments written on our hearts and on our minds. If I turn to Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, Ezekiel 36. We are pioneers of the New Covenant, and the Feast of Pentecost tells us that we are the first fruits, that we are the pioneers of the New Covenant, that God is writing His laws on our hearts and on our minds. And that's not done in a vacuum. It's done with education and with practice and obedience and application to the statutes and the judgments as the more detailed application of the Ten Commandments. Here's a prophecy of Israel coming out of the Great Tribulation. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Again, that's the new covenant, and you can read about that in Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. And again, he's talking to New Testament Christians, of course, in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. And he's talking about a future when physical Judah and physical Israel in the millennium will have a new covenant with God and God will write upon them his laws. As he says here, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So as they come out of the second exodus, as mentioned in Jeremiah 23, verse 31, you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Let's first turn now to 1 John 3:24. So God's Holy Spirit writes his laws on our hearts in our minds. We are pioneers of the new covenant. We are living the new covenant now as God writes his laws in our hearts and on our minds, and that will happen to the physical nations during the millennium. Another aspect of God's Holy Spirit is extremely important, which we teach continually. First John, the third chapter, and verse 24. First John 3 and verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments, the Christian who keeps God's commandments, abides in God or in him, and he, God, in the individual. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom or which he has given us. So by God's Spirit is how Christ lives his life in us. Galatians 2.20. And I've challenged you before, I've yet to do it myself, I'll challenge you once again, to look through the book of 1 John and mark every place where it says God dwells in you and you dwell in him. I'll just give you a couple more examples right across um, the page. Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 4, 
No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him, and he in us. How? Because he has given us of his spirit. So Christ lives in us by the power of his spirit. How close is God to you? We heard in the sermonette. Well, if God is in you, if Christ is in you, you are very close. And I remind myself of James 4, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. One final aspect of God's Holy Spirit I'll just refer to, since you heard the sermon on preparing for spiritual gifts, God gives us the gifts of his Spirit, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And also, of course, you can read the, uh, my article in the May-June 2009 Living Church News, the first New Testament uh, Pentecost. And also, I hope you'll read uh, Dr. Ornell's article, What Does Pentecost Mean to You? He describes our special calling. As I wrote here in my article, always remember that we are God's begotten children and the servants of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts, the 17th chapter, Acts 17. King David prayed, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He said that in Psalm 51 and verse 11. We need to pray the same thing, to be renewed in our minds daily, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. God poured out His Spirit on the apostles and the disciples on the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D. And since that time, He proclaims to the world through His servants to repent and be baptized, to repent and be converted. Acts 17 and verse 28. Here He was in Athens, and He's preaching to the Greeks. He says in verse 28, For in Him, talking about the true God, the unknown God to the Athenians, for in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And that's part of the message that goes out through this headquarters here and around the world, for our ministers and other regions around the world, that is a part of our everyday message. God reveals his plan through the annual Sabbaths and holy days and festivals. He's called us to be first fruits in his plan. So now is the time for us to fulfill those responsibilities and preaching the gospel as a witness to the world. We need to pray about the semi-annual letter, as Dr. Meredith brought out in the announcements, that many will be turned to righteousness, as Daniel said in Daniel 12 and verse 3. We need to warn the world to escape the great tribulation, and we need to accomplish that mission. Zechariah 4, 6, how? Not by might, nor by power, that is by human power, but by my spirit. And thank God for that gift that is by His power that we can be transformed in the very image of Christ. It's by that power that we will fulfill the mission that God has given us. 
Let's turn finally to Ephesians 5, verse 18. I'm sure you read this on the day of Pentecost. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And again, uh, be sure to read the commentary in the bulletin, Are You Filled with the Holy Spirit? by Dr. Douglas Winnale. Ephesians 5, 18. Be not drunk with wine. I have to interject here that uh, I remember years ago when a Baptist uh, was converted to the truth and he always thought that wherever wine was uh, appeared in the Bible that the, his church taught him that it should translate it as grape juice. So he humorously read this, and be not drunk with grape juice, in which is dissipation. But seriously, uh, he says, be not drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And we manifest that by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. Part of that nature is to be thankful, thanking God always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So, brethren, we must pursue a close relationship with God and always be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's always rejoice every day, rejoice in the miracle of conversion. And may we stir up that gift in our lives so that we can be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And may we radiate love and joy and peace as God's Spirit flows out from us and the fruits of the Spirit. And may we thank God daily for the work that He is doing through us, through His Spirit, that Christ is doing in our lives. So, brethren, repent and be more deeply converted and participate fully in the miracle of transformation.